Greetings, listeners, from your distinctly genial host, John Derbyshire, with my weekly survey of the passing Charivari. First of all, many, many thanks to listeners and readers who took the time and trouble to email in wishing me a happy birthday. Thank you. And yes, it was a happy birthday, culminating in a dinner with the family at my favourite French restaurant. God bless my dear family. Just one more housekeeping note, arising from my May diary. I mentioned having spent much of the month absorbed in a 3,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. How's that going? It's gone! Finished it yesterday. Many, many thanks to the friend who gifted me that. It was a worthy challenge. OK, let's see what's been happening in the world at large. Panic of the week here in the northeast has been the poor air quality caused by widespread forest fires in eastern Canada. Outdoor activities are being cancelled. Philadelphia schools have shifted to remote learning. We're getting robocall alerts from local authorities advising us to stay indoors. Neighbours walking their dogs are wearing face masks again. And suddenly everyone is an expert on air quality index. Just like if there's a plane crash in the news, everyone suddenly knows all about metal fatigue or clear air turbulence. I'm afraid I can't work up much alarm. It's a generational thing. I grew up breathing air smoky from burning tobacco. Most indoor spaces were thick with it. Homes, offices, movie theatres, even stores. I smoked cigarettes myself for 30-some years, and I still enjoy an occasional cigar. The English outdoors used to be smoky too. People heated their houses by burning coal. My sister's first husband was an American from one of the southern states. I remember him remarking that when he visited England for the first time, this would have been the mid-1960s, he noticed the universal smell of burning soft coal. I didn't personally experience the great London smogs of the early 1950s, but I remember hearing radio news announcers reporting on them. They were no surprise to local people in the town where I grew up. Those local provincials referred to London, 70 miles away, by metonymy as the smoke. Our next-door neighbour, Bob Longdon, was a local. 
He worked as a truck driver when I was a student at University College London in the mid-1960s. At the start of the college term, I would check with Bob to see if I could hitch a ride. Hey, Bob, you going down to the smoke any time soon? The big industrial cities of the north of England were even worse. At any rate, when Orwell was writing about them in the late 1930s, he observes somewhere that when northerners were on vacation at the seaside far from the factories, they would grumble that the air had no flavour to it. Medical professionals used to joke that when a lung specialist who was trained in some big city was posted to some rural district, he'd be surprised to find the country people afflicted with pink lung disease. Please don't get me wrong. Sure, I prefer my air quality index to be low, and I'm glad that the excesses of the tobacco age have been shamed out of existence. Sixteen years ago, I published a column in National Review about how I missed cigarettes. It wasn't intended altogether seriously, but I got an indignant letter from a lady whose beloved father... A -a two-pack-a-day man had died from emphysema. It's only that I'm not half as afraid of smoky air as I am of public hysterias, to which our age is much too prone. This looks like another one such, although of a minor and temporary kind. And it's plausible that the cause of this week's little air quality hysteria is another, much bigger, longer-lasting and more destructive, politically, economically and socially destructive hysteria. Climate change. I said... Politically, economically and socially back there. Let me deal with those in turn. First, the destructive effects on politics. Again, consider those Canadian forest fires. A key feature of professional forest management is controlled burns. Left to itself, a forest accumulates masses of loose stuff at ground level. Long grass, shrubbery, last year's leaves, fallen branches, here and there fallen dead trees. In a long dry season, that stuff is highly inflammable. It only takes a careless motorist or hiker or a dry lightning strike to ignite the whole lot. You don't even need lightning or a discarded cigarette. Spontaneous combustion will do the trick. Quote from the US National Park Service website, quote, 
Spontaneous combustion, or spontaneous ignition, as it is often called, is the occurrence of fire without the application of an external heat source. Due to chemical, biological, or physical processes, combustible materials self-heat to a temperature high enough for ignition to occur. According to the National Fire Protection Association, an estimated 14,070 fires occur annually from spontaneous combustion. End quote. The majority of that 14,000 are domestic or industrial incidents. Piles of oily old rags spontaneously igniting and so on. Still, in the immensity of forests like Canada's, with billions of tonnes of dry, dead vegetable matter quietly rotting away, spontaneous combustion is by no means out of play. So, good forest management includes precautions against out-of-control fires. One technique is fires that are carefully under control. There's an art to it, of course. You want a good supply of water nearby, for example, but that's the stuff you learn in forest management school. Or it used to be. Quote from the Daily Mail Online, June 8th, quote, Parks Canada had only scheduled 23 controlled burns this year. By comparison, there were 150,000 in America in 2019. End quote. A lot of the discrepancy there is due to green activists who are much more energetic in Canada than in the USA. In Australia, even more so. Or at least that was the case in the late 2010s, when activists stopped controlled burns altogether because of the damage they did to wildlife. The result was the colossal Australian bushfires of 2019 and 2020, in which at least one entire town had to be evacuated. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau doesn't concern himself with dirty fingernails, blue-collar issues like forest management. He takes a much loftier view, looking at the big picture. What's causing these wildfires? Climate change! Quote from Canada's Philosopher King at a presser on Monday, quote, Year after year, with climate change, we're seeing more and more intense wildfires and in places where they don't normally happen, end quote. And guess who agrees with him? Yes, it's that well-known and superbly eloquent geophysicist, Kamala Harris. Here was our vice president, tweeting on Thursday, Tweet, Millions of people are experiencing dangerous air quality due to wildfires across Canada, which are intensifying 
because of the climate crisis. End tweet. So, there are some destructive political consequences of climate change hysteria. What about economics? Last Sunday, Saudi Arabia announced that it would begin cutting oil production by one million barrels a day in July. It's a unilateral cut by the Saudis, not a full OPEC cut. Although other OPEC nations, along with Saudi Arabia, had announced production cuts just two months ago. Those April cuts are to last through at least the end of this year. The point is, of course, to prop up the worldwide price of oil and its byproducts. And it works. Following the April cuts, the global price of oil jumped nearly 6%. Manipulating oil markets is easy. So, the Biden administration will counter these moves by encouraging domestic oil production, right? Wrong. Just the contrary, in fact. Just a few days ago, prior to the Saudis' unilateral production cut, but well after those April cuts, our Department of the Interior put a 20-year ban on new oil and gas drilling that covers 550 square miles of land in New Mexico. This ban is the fruit of some ethnic conflict down there, conflict between two tribes of American Indians. In the left corner, we have the Pueblo Laguna tribe. In the right corner, the Navajo Nation, which owns most of the land under the ban. The Navajos are furious about the ban. They want drilling for oil and gas on this land. It brings in jobs and money. A gross $10 million a year on one estimate. What's not to like? The other tribe, though, the Pueblo Laguna, is concerned about, quote, about the impacts that new development would have on areas of deep cultural connection, end quote. At the centre of those 550 square miles is the Chaco Cultural National Historical Park, which the Pueblo Lagunas tell us is very dear to them. So, an ethnic squabble. But diversity is our strength. By a peculiar coincidence, Joe Biden's Secretary of the Interior, Deb Harland, is herself half Pueblo Laguna. The other half is Norwegian-American. Even more peculiar, Secretary Harland's daughter, Soma, is a full-time lobbyist for the organisation promoting the drilling ban. So strange. Stranger yet... 
The New York Times coverage of the ban didn't mention the ethnic angle. This latest ban is, of course, all of a piece with the Biden administration's war on fossil fuels. If the human race is not to be wiped out by climate change, we must all go electric. To power our cars, trucks, ships, planes and machinery, to heat and cool our homes and workplaces, to manufacture our plastics, we must use electricity. And the electricity must be generated by means that don't involve oil, gas or coal. By solar power, when the sun's shining, or wind power, when the wind's blowing. It's all a great fantasy. Yes, the climate is changing. It always has and it always will. Look up the little ice age of just a few hundred years ago. Humanity coped. And with modern technology, we'll cope a whole lot better. I've done my share of bitching about the Donald Trump presidency. He never got control over the legislative process or the federal bureaucracies, and so he never got anything done to real lasting effect. Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell and the DC lifers nodded respectfully in his presence but laughed at him behind his back. Trump did, though, give us energy independence for a while. It wasn't real and lasting, but it was in good, spirited defiance of the climate change cranks. Let's try to get a chief executive who get us back to energy independence and keep us there. All right, that's the political and the economic destruction being wrought by climate change hysteria. What about the social angle? This isn't as big a deal, but it's worth some commentary. Most of the disruption caused by the climate change crazies has been in Britain and Europe. Two weeks ago in this podcast, for example, I noted the stunt that they staged at Rome's Trevi Fountain, pouring black dye into the water, permanently staining the white stone structure. There have been similar acts of vandalism in art galleries, activists supergluing themselves to the frames of famous artworks or throwing food at the paintings themselves. A much bigger nuisance, in Britain particularly, has been climate change protesters blocking main roads with slow marches. There have been some furious reactions from citizens trying to get to work or drive their kids to school. In the proper spirit of anarcho-tyranny, police are, of course, targeting the angry citizens, not the protesters. There's been some protesting here in the USA, too. Extinction Rebellion has a chapter in New York City, and there have been some scuffles with the police. 
Climate change protesting isn't as much in evidence here as in the old world, though. In this, as in so much else, the Brits and the Euros are more woke than us. That's a sociologically interesting thing in itself, with all sorts of angles for the intrepid social critic to explore. Why, for example, is Canada more European in this regard than we are? And then the social psychology of grand hysterias in general. Mocking Justin Trudeau back there, I called him a philosopher king. Sure, it was an idle quip, but there's some deep social criticism behind it. For further insights, I direct your attention to that wonderful magazine, The New Criterion. The June issue just arrived yesterday. It includes an account by Professor Gary Saul Mawson, an account of the 20th century Jewish intellectual Jacob Taubis, who I had never heard of until Professor Mawson introduced me to him. Professor Mawson's account is inspired by historian Jerry Z. Muller's 2022 book, Professor of Apocalypse. But it's more than a book review. It offers a critical account of Taubes, but also of 20th century intellectualism at large. I'll just quote some lines of Professor Mawson's that particularly got my attention. Slightly edited quote. My first book, Examining Utopia as a Literary Genre, took an anti-utopian stance. Later, I developed a theory of life and literature I called prosaics which finds the greatest value not in grand theories or dramatic events, but in the ordinary processes of daily life. No ideology can substitute for basic decency. The 20th century bears witness. Nothing causes more evil than the attempt to abolish it forever. And... No ideology gives one an alibi for individual responsibility. End quote. I like that. Not in grand theories or dramatic events, but in the ordinary processes of daily life. Yes. No ideology can substitute for basic decency. Double yes. I'm a great fan of those ordinary processes, of prosaics. Why isn't that word better known? I understand, of course, that a scholarly journal of prosaics or an endowed university chair of prosaic studies would be contradictions in terms. But why don't more people declare their outlook on life to be prosaic? 
perhaps because too many of us are too busy thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion and climate change. That segues nicely into some ongoing conversations I've been having with listeners about our open southern border. I started this two weeks ago with my Radio Derb segment titled What's Driving Open Borders? My correspondents are pretty unanimous that I didn't sufficiently stress the ideological aspect. They have persuaded me. I didn't. Let me give an illustration. It's not uncommon for social justice warriors to refer to me as anti-immigrant. That always strikes me as weird. Even weirder than usual for SJWs. And their usual is already pretty weird. I am an immigrant. My wife is an immigrant. Around one in three of our friends are immigrants. My boss is an immigrant. So, according to these accusers, I am anti-myself, anti-Mrs. Derbyshire, anti-one-third of our friends, and anti-Peter Brimelow. Say what? After a while, I figured out what's going on here. The word immigrant is not being used with its dictionary meaning. It's meaning in law, in common usage, it's prosaic meaning. It's being used as an ideological marker for victimhood. The essence of an ideology is that it divides humanity into oppressors and victims. In the biggest and most lethal 20th century ideology, Marxist-Leninist communism, the oppressors were capitalists, the victims were the working classes. In critical race theory, the oppressors are, of course, white people. The victims are blacks. I'm not sure where other races fit in to the schema. Korean storekeepers, I think, are white adjacent and therefore oppressors. South Asians, I'm not sure about at all. Critical race theory is, however, a not very coherent attempt to make a rigid formal system out of a vague, cloudy cast of mind. The cast of minds that, that sees poor people in dysfunctional countries as victims. Victims of less poor people in better governed countries. So Venezuelans, Haitians and Guatemalans are victims of middle class Americans. Immigrant in this usage is just a code word for victim. Anti-immigrant is code for oppressor. And victims are, of course, morally superior to their oppressors. That sound you hear from up above is old Fred Nietzsche chuckling. 
Sorry, I'm still under the influence of that issue of the new criterion that arrived yesterday. The influencer this time is not Professor Mawson, though. It's tech entrepreneur Peter Thiel. You don't expect to see Silicon Valley billionaires sounding off in highbrow journals of literature and the arts, but Thiel can do it with the best of them. Sample quote. At the end of his life, when Nietzsche was going insane, he said something along the lines of, God of the Jews, you have won. By this remark he meant that the modern West would be a world ruled by the victim. In one sense, Nietzsche's intuition was correct. When modern man stares into the abyss, it's the abyss of the unforgettable victim, now barely clinging to its Judeo-Christian heritage. But was the development that Nietzsche foresaw inevitable? Or did it depend on the tacit acceptance, at some level, of certain distortions to the Judeo-Christian tradition, which Nietzsche and his successors fundamentally misunderstood? End quote. Deep waters here. But you don't have to dive into academic philosophy to see the destructive effects of this ideology as applied to immigration. It's now indisputably clear that the Biden administration is determined to bring in as many border jumpers as they can, without limit or restraint. Currently, somewhere north of 2 million a year, but next year perhaps 5 million, even 10 million. They will all be given accommodation, work permits, health care and education for their kids. Some of them will then proceed to make themselves a lethal danger to their neighbours. Right here in my county, New York's Suffolk County, Two weeks ago, an illegal alien from El Salvador, name of Anthony Gutierrez Meza, pleaded guilty for his part in the beating, murder and mutilation of another wetback. Some others will just be lethal dangers to themselves, like the two who died from drug overdoses outside one of the emergency shelters that New York City has established, to handle the influx of scofflaws. Quote from the news report, New York Post, June 2nd. In a quote, We were saddened to learn about the tragic death this week of two asylum seekers found outside of a facility in Brooklyn where the city is providing migrants shelter. End in a quote. A city hall spokesperson said. End quote. It's sad, you see, so sad. They are victims, poor, helpless victims, just seeking asylum. 
We middle-class white Americans are their oppressors. As the great Dr. Heinz kiosk was already telling us 50 years ago, we are guilty, all guilty. Even worse than the climate change madness and the open borders lunacy, there stands the degraded state of our legal system. This too is rooted in ideology. The victims here are those that prosaics like me consider to be criminals who should be locked up. No, no, say the ideologues. They are victims. Victims of hunger and desperation. Victims of poverty and social disadvantage. Victims of centuries of discrimination and disempowerment. Who are the oppressors? First and foremost, they are the police and the courts. With, behind them, we smug white property owners. We are all guilty. Shoplifting is now essentially legal. It's hard to see how retail stores can exist for much longer. In American cities all over, drug stores are locking their wares up. For a tube of toothpaste, you now have to go to the front desk and ask, as if you were buying jewellery. In New York City, store owners are trying to operate cash-free, in defiance of a city ordinance that requires businesses to accept cash. And we're starting to hear mutterings about protection deals. Organised freelance squads who, for a modest fee, will keep an eye on your business for you and deal with shoplifters by means... Not necessarily lawful. This system is probably already operating in a few locations. Places with a high concentration of Sicilians with thick necks, perhaps. I wouldn't be surprised if we were to see more of it in years to come. Who needs uniformed cops anyway? They're just oppressors. Over at Twitter, meanwhile, the person with handle Cremieux has been doing some interesting math on a long report out of a professional journal called Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology. What's it all about? Well, that long academic report gives, in extravagant detail, gives the statistics for violent crime recidivism. How many people just commit one violent crime? How many commit two? And of them, how many do so with a prison sentence in between the two? And so on. Cremieux has boiled this down and simplified it to in strikes laws. In strikes laws. You, you remember three strikes laws in California and elsewhere back in the 1990s. Well, Cremieux has calculated that 
a 10 strikes law that allowed you nine violent crimes with non-custodial sentences, but life imprisonment for the 10th, that would reduce violent crime by only 20%. A five strikes law would cut violent crime by 40%. A three strikes law, like those in California, would halve violent crime, cutting 50%. A two strikes law would remove nearly two-thirds of violent crime. The logical end point here is Derbyshire's one-strike law. I usually promote it under the statement, jump a subway turnstile, go to the chair. Cremieux is only talking about violent crime, though, and with no capital punishment, so we are slightly at odds here. There's food for thought, though. We don't need to have any crime. The right penal policies would flush criminality right out of the gene pool. One thing our legal system is still good at is, of course, hunting down opponents of the ruling regime. Former President Donald Trump found that out this week when he was hit with a 37-count indictment for mishandling some documents. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who this Tuesday announced his candidacy for the GOP presidential nomination, Chris Christie, on hearing about Trump's indictment, tweeted that, tweet, No one is above the law, no matter how much they wish they were. End tweet. How they love to tell us that. The regime and its shills. No one is above the law. It's a great favourite with Nancy Pelosi, and I believe Kamala Harris has been heard to utter it. US Attorney General Merrick Garland probably has a needlework version on his living room wall, in between the framed pictures of Lenin and Pol Pot. Yeah, right. No one is above the law. No one but shoplifters and anti-far rioters. No one but two million border jumpers per annum. No one but Hunter Biden, his dad and his uncle. Eh, the state of law in America. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. A footnote to my climate change remarks. Composing those remarks, I recalled having seen earlier in the week someone mocking the idea of global warming by observing that the ice coverage of Antarctica is actually increasing. Not what you'd expect if global warming was a real thing. 
Googling to confirm my recollection, I turned up a report dated May 16th this year out of the European Geosciences Union, telling me that, yes, quote from the abstract, overall, the Antarctic ice shelf area has grown by 5,305 square kilometres since 2009, with 18 ice shelves retreating and 16 larger shelves growing in area, end quote. That's better than 2,000 square miles of ice. A lot of ice. Diving down into the body of the report, I see there is a lot of science here with localised retreating, advancing and carving of the ice. I love that usage of the verb to carve, C-A-L-V-E. Faced with heavy-duty science like this, I wouldn't be bold enough to draw global conclusions, but, hey, yes, there's 2,000 square miles of extra ice down there from 2009 to 2019. 200 square miles a year. Item. Nine days into Pride Month, it's time I posted some comments. I am, of course, negative on the whole thing. I've expressed myself on this many times over the years. Here I was, way back in 2002, in a column headed Minoritarianism. Quote, In a civilised liberal democracy, majorities owe certain things to harmless minorities. Tolerance civility, and the rights affirmed in the Constitution, freedom of speech, assembly, etc. However, it seems to me that minorities owe something to the majority in return, mainly a proper respect for their tastes, beliefs and sensibilities, and a decent restraint in challenging them, if there are some reasonable grounds for challenging them. This contract imposes some costs on minorities, of course, but I think they should look on those costs as the price of the tolerance they enjoy. Is that patronising? Well, then add being patronised to the list of costs, none of which, in any case I can think of in American society today, is much more arduous or oppressive than that. There are, after all, reciprocal costs on the majority when they make those accommodations. End quote. I wouldn't change a word of that, but reading it now, 21 years later, it sounds quaint. Sexual minorities have progressed, or regressed, from telling normal people to tolerate us, leave us alone, to telling us to celebrate us, 
praise and support us. I preferred the older dispensation. Item. I see that Mike Pence has declared his candidacy for the GOP presidential nomination. Uh, okay. As you may be able to tell, I haven't given much thought to Mike Pence. Who has? He was the invisible man of the Trump presidency, and he hasn't advanced in visibility in the two and a third years since. Scrambling to catch up, I thought I would check where he is on the national question, which is our prime concern here at video.com. I didn't find much, but there was this report out of Phoenix, Arizona, a year ago. June 13th, 2022. Pence took a tour of the border area and then went to Phoenix and gave a speech. On the border issue, it was pure Trumpism. I mean, it was in line with the proposals that got Trump elected in 2016, not with the haphazard bits and pieces that Trump actually accomplished. Outlaw sanctuary cities, finish the border wall, reinstate remain in Mexico, deport illegal criminals and gang members. Good, solid stuff. On one or two points, Pence actually went further than Trumpism. He wants to end chain migration and bring back the public charge rule. Nothing about birthright citizenship or guest worker visas, but, hey, from what I've read so far, we could do worse than Mike Pence. Let's just hope we don't. That's all, ladies and gents. Thank you for listening, and thanks once again to all who emailed in with birthday wishes. Don't forget that next Wednesday, June 14th, is Flag Day. And, of course, I look forward to seeing some of you at the V-Dare Summer Conference next weekend. I don't know why, but this time of year always puts me in mind of old English songs. Here's one from the Broadside Band. James Hook's 1789 ditty, The Lass of Richmond Hill. The tenor here is John Potter. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Alas, for bright and made more, whose charms all other maids surpass a rose without a thorn. This lass so neat, with smile so sweet, has won my right good will. I'd crowns resigned to call thee mine, sweet lass of Richmond Hill, sweet lass of Richmond Hill. 
sweet lass of Richmond Hill, I've crowned, resigned to call thee mine, sweet lass of Richmond Hill. Letters gay that fan the air and wanton through the grove. Oh, whisper to my charming fair, I die for her I love. This lass so neat with smiles so sweet has won my right good will. I'd crowns resign to call thee mine, sweet lass of Richmond Hill. Lass of Richmond Hill, sweet lass of Richmond Hill, I'd crowns resign to call thee mine, sweet lass of Richmond.